0: You can have a seat. Good morning, River City. We as a church exist. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. And we do that by contending for His gospel and contextualizing that same gospel, that it's heard and understood and known. So we preach it, we study it, we proclaim it. We desire to be shaped by it so that our lives kind of live out the reality of it. We seek the welfare of our city and our community. And our prayer is that a movement of reproducing disciples spills out from among us and ultimately reproducing churches. It's a little bit of of who we are and why we exist. And I just wanted to keep that in front of us this morning as we come to God's Word. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2, we're continuing to study Luke's gospel this spring. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 24. And as you're finding your place, uh, just a little background to kind of set us up. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, when we left church, it was snowing that day, if you remember. Big, fat, snow globe-sized snowflakes. We went home as a family and loaded up our car and Drove to Texas to visit some family. It was great, by the way. It was a much-needed time of rest for us. Uh, but as we got back in the car this last Monday morning and to make our way back north, and maybe you've experienced this, just about as soon as we started the drive, the list of all the things that I had yet to do, because they didn't stop. They just put on, were put on hold for a week. The list started to grow in my mind. And somewhere in Kansas, I started to feel the weight of everything left undone. Have you experienced this when you've been away expecting this time of rest? And like the moment you wake up to go back home, you're like, oh no. The list, right? And as I'm looking through the windshield at the, the vast sameness of the Central Plains, I start to think to myself... Well, you know, if I could move this around in my calendar, and I got to follow up an email with that person, and so I'll put that on for Monday, and I started to, like, work that list out in my head, and even though I wasn't actually checking things off a box, or checking off the boxes, excuse me, on my list, just the thought of being able to clear them released that little hit of dopamine, right? That little, oh, this might not be so bad. But the problem was, the moment I actually opened up my reminder list or opened up my calendar when we got back, none of the things in my head that I had begun to check off were actually checked. And so the little bit of joy that I took in the possibility of a normal couple of days just kind of all died. But it prompted this question in me as I was praying through this text and preparing this message. In what other ways do I look for temporary joys? To put it another way, am I tempted to trade short-term happiness happiness for a long-term joy? And maybe you can relate to that. Not that temporary things are are inherently bad, because they're not. But are we far too easily pleased by temporary and fleeting things at the risk of missing deeper, more important, more eternal realities? Specifically, the joy that we're anchored to in Jesus, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of external pressures and the worries and cares of life, even in our own spiritual lives, do we settle for lesser joys? It's a question I've been wrestling with. And so as we open Luke 10, it seems as if Jesus is pressing into this reality just a little. If you recall, last week, Pastor Devin reminded us that Jesus' ministry now has shifted From here on out, all the way through Luke chapter 19, Jesus has a a laser-like focus on Jerusalem and what it represents, the cross that he will bear and on which he'll suffer in order to accomplish salvation for his people. His mission of salvation, his message of the kingdom of God that is invading their lives are central in front of him. And as they're going, there's still a whole lot of work to be done Right? There's always more people, there's always more needs, and in the middle of all this activity, I think Jesus is teasing out a little bit of a lesson of, about the source of true and lasting joy, because there are many things that bring hope and happiness and joy to our lives, but true and lasting joy is ours as the kingdom of God is invading our lives and as we find ourselves in Christ Jesus. So let's pick up our reading in Luke chapter 10. Starting in verse 1, and like I said, we'll read all the way through verse 24. So it's a longer section today. Luke chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages." The one who hears you hears me and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I want to look at this text in two parts, the first being receiving or rejecting the kingdom, verses 1 through 16, and the second is rejoicing in the king, verses 17 through the end of our passage, verse 24. Let's look at the first part, the receiving or rejecting the kingdom. Luke records Jesus commissioning out 72 disciples. In pairs, he sends them into every town and place where he himself was about to go. They were to prepare the way for Jesus to eventually enter that town. As an aside, there's some scholarly uh, arguing, if you will, on the number that should be translated here. Should it be the number 70 or should it be the number 72? Now, the scholars I spent the most time with this week leaned more towards 72 as opposed to 70 just based on translation. But either way both 70 and 72, represent the same thing. They represent the nations of the earth that existed at the time. So the picture here, the message here, is that the the message of the kingdom is designed to make its way to all the nations of the earth. This is a preview, if you will, of the commissioning that Jesus gives his disciples in Matthew 28 where he says the message will be preached not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, not just even in Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. So we have a picture here being previewed of every uh, uh, tribe, tongue, language, and people. So Jesus sends them out in pairs. By the way, this is also the biblical warrant for the buddy system. If you're ever looking for the biblical defense of buddy system, here it is. He sent them out two by two. This is where you find it. So in case anyone ever tells you like chapter and verse, you'd be like, well, Luke chapter 10, buddy system. And these 72 disciples go to at least 36 different towns or cities or villages. That's right, simple math. Uh, They probably went to more. They went to one, stayed for a few days, and then went on to another. So this is representing a lot of work ahead of Jesus and his group of disciples. And he instructs them in some very specific ways. Look here at verse 2. Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's the first thing he tells them to do as he's sending them out is to pray that the Lord would raise up more harvesters, if you will. There's a lot of work ahead of them. Using the analogy of a, of a field, and I didn't grow up on a farm, but I've lived here in the Red River Valley long enough to know that when the crop is ready, the crop is ready. <laughs> right? It's go time. This is why you'll see trucks hauling virtually day and night in some seasons. Why they run harvesters and combines when it's snowing at times. Why? Why? Because when the crop needs to come out of the ground, it comes out of the ground. Jesus is sending out His disciple like farmhands to help harvest the fruit of the kingdom of the souls of people. He's saying it's ready. The harvest is ready. That's the first thing. Second, He says, go your way. Verse 3, this isn't only praying that the Lord would send someone else. It's asking the Lord to raise up fellow laborers as they go. Sometimes we can get mission and missions a little confused because we feel we're not called to a foreign mission field or or to a cross-cultural ministry. So, Lord, raise up workers to go to those places and we see ourselves as exempt. But as disciples of Jesus, as participants and co-heirs of the kingdom of God, this is our calling as well. This phrase, go your way, has a connotation of transformation, of identity. This is part of who you are. And so as you are going, doing the work you've been called to do, pray that the Lord would raise up fellow laborers alongside you. And then Jesus says this, and I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of... Of wolves. Wolves eat lambs, if you didn't know that, by the way. He, Jesus is saying, I'm sending you into harm's way. This isn't easy, but I'm sending you anyway. That's the, the picture there of what he's doing as he sends them out. And then he gives them some practical instructions. Don't take anything extra, not an extra bag. Uh, don't have to take extra money. Don't waste time. Receive what you're given, housing and food. Receive it with gratitude. If they receive you, bless them. If they don't receive you, wipe the dust from your feet and move on. We've received and read similar instructions already in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus sends out the 12. He tells them something very similar Don't take extra money, don't take an extra bag, don't take extra sandals. Now, as we said before, this doesn't mean to just go through life willy nilly without preparation. But there's something here in this mission, some trust that the Lord will provide, that he's developing in his disciples. And it's a test for every town that they'll step into. Are they going to believe the message that's coming to them? And if they are, then they'll receive it and the messengers with gratitude and hospitality. And if they won't and they reject it, well, that speaks volumes about the heart, if you will, of those people. One other thing, this What's interesting in this one, which is different from Luke 9, is Jesus specifically tells them to greet no one on the road. And so for the introverts in the room, you're like, great. I don't have to talk to people. That's not exactly what's happening here, by the way. This is not an excuse for rudeness. Eastern culture and first century Near East culture in particular, the greetings and the cultural... uh, expectations at the time that, that might everyone you might stop and talk to could take a very long time Just cultural appropriateness and kindness and hospitality and Jesus is saying that's that's all well and good but right now right now we don't have time for all of that his time is short remember he's looking like a laser at the cross so the time we have now in this short window is short so don't waste time. That's what he's saying. And like his sending of the twelve, when you enter a town and you're welcomed in, don't spend time finding the nicest house with the best guest bedroom and the, the best cook. Don't stay a few extra days when you hear like, well, down the street, they have really good food or a couple houses down, they have a pool. So maybe we'll just stick around in this neighborhood for a while and relax. Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Receive with gladness everything that's given to you, he says. And as an aside, another aside, this could have some implications because they're in mixed company. It could be a Gentile home or even worse, a Samaritan home who would welcome them in and show hospitality. Those houses would not hold as strict the dietary guidelines that a faithful Jewish person would. And yet Jesus says, receive what you're given with gratitude. In a sense, saying the mission that you're called to is of utmost importance. And so if you are received, then while you're there, bless them. Pray for them. Bring them the message of the kingdom and receive with gratitude whatever they put in front of you. And he says, seek out a person of peace. This is someone who's willing to hear what they have to say. And Jesus says, bless them. And if they reject you, you can remind them of the dangers of rejection. Wipe your feet and move on. See, receiving the message of the disciples results in blessing. They they get prayed for. They hear a message of hope of the kingdom. And they're setting the stage for Jesus. Well, he's going to come to this town eventually and we'd like him to meet you, right? That's all happening for those who receive these messengers. But those who reject the messengers, look at verse 12, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than it will be for that town. Uh, That day is referring to the day of judgment. When Christ returns in all his glory, Sodom, the great city of wickedness that God himself destroyed, Sodom will be better off on the day of judgment, than the city or the town that rejects Jesus now. That's what he's saying. It's quite the statement. I mean, the picture in the dictionary next to city of wickedness is Sodom, or it should be. And Jesus continues in verse 13 and kind of adds to this caution. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. See, the Gospels don't record everything that Jesus said or did in his ministry but we know that from the time it started until the time he enters Jerusalem it's pretty much non-stop so Chorazin and Bethsaida were places where he ministered extensively there are places that had already kind of pushed back against him and his message and there are those like Chorazin like Bethsaida who would reject him in the future and He's warning his disciples to just be ready that there are others who will not receive this message. Verse 13, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. So in these places, like Chorazin and Bethsaida, Jesus had done miracles. He had done miraculous things, and they decided after seeing what they saw to not repent, to not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. They rejected Jesus and his message in spite of all that he did there. And so Jesus compares these Galilean towns with Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you want to deep dive into those two uh, Old Testament town cities, you can read more in Isaiah 23, Ezekiel 28, and Amos 1. We're not going to go into those today. But the idea here is that if these cities of the Old Testament, rejected God's prophets, and as such, they suffered judgment. Other nations were risen up to smite them. If they rejected the message of God, when we get to the end, it will be more bearable for them who rejected the prophets of God than it will be for you who rejects the Messiah himself. That's the comparison Jesus is giving. It's no small thing. And then, to top it off, Jesus includes Capernaum, where Jesus had done lots and lots and lots of ministry, preached many messages, healed many of sickness and disease, freed many from spiritual bondage. And he asks, rhetorically in verse 15, Will you, Capernaum, be exalted to heaven? And then he just answers his own rhetorical question and says, You shall be brought down to Hades. So you've been given something, he's saying. that that, that people of these ancient cities never had. They only had the promise of salvation. You have salvation in front of your eyes, and yet you still reject me. There's only one way to peace, and that is receiving the message and messenger of the kingdom. The alternative is judgment. Jesus makes no bones about it. But why does he tell his disciples all this? Why is this included in the instruction before they go? Remember, he just told them, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Verse 16, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Rejection for any reason results in judgment, all the more for looking square at Jesus and saying, no thanks. But, Receiving the message of the kingdom. Believing that the kingdom of God has come near. That it has invaded. That Christ is now actively extending mercy. That he's calling his people to turn aside from their futile and selfish pursuits. There's hope there. And this is the reality of the world that he's sending these disciples into. He's sending out these 72. And if we're listening, I think there's something to be said The world in which we live as well. This is our reality as well. But this isn't merely a a lesson in rejecting or receiving Jesus. There's something here about the source of lasting joy, and that's the, the other part I want to look at this morning. Let's look at verse 17. Somewhere between 16 and 17, in that little white space between those two verses, these 72 disciples are out and proclaiming the message of the kingdom. They're healing the sick They're praying for those who are in bondage to to demonic forces, and they're, they're experiencing healing. That all happens in this little white space between 16 and 17. We don't know how long that is or exactly how far they all traveled, but verse 17 tells us that the 72 returned with joy. Why? Well, Luke says their report was that demons were subject to them in Jesus' name. They listened to them. They had authority over demons. They wielded spiritual authority, and demons had to leave those who they were oppressing. They, they were subservient to these followers of Jesus when they were confronted in the name and power of Jesus. It's a pretty amazing thing, actually, especially considering just a few verses ago they were unable to do anything to free a boy from bondage, To demonic forces, and here now they come back like cheering because, like, look at we did it right. And on its face, this is worth celebrating that people were freed from bondage, that they heard the message of hope of the kingdom. It's worth celebrating. I don't want to minimize that. And look at Jesus' response I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he says. Now, now, pause there for a second. There's a couple of Schools of thought on how to understand this passage. One school says Jesus is primarily talking about what happened before, uh, pre incarnate. He's talking about the original fall of Satan from heaven when he rebelled against God the Father and was cast down out of heaven. And the other way to understand this is, is the decline of Satan's power that's now begun as Jesus is now on the scene in the flesh, bringing about the kingdom in real time. And I'm kind of, I am kind of lean towards the, the second one, and, and here's why. The connotation of the phrase fall like lightning seems to imply not merely the power of lightning, which we all know is cool, but the speed of it. So to the outside observer, if you're just living in one of these little small towns and two random unknown disciples show up, and start talking about the kingdom of God and about, about healing from, from disease and, and, and freedom from bondage to, to demonic forces and that there's hope in God's Messiah has come and they're like, yeah, I want to hear that. And as these two disciples are there preaching and encouraging and healing, your view of that in that little town is just that. It's a one-off experience with these two guys and it's amazing and it's cool, but that's it. That's your experience, just this one little thing happening. But from Jesus' perspective, back as the one who has sent them in these 36 little groups that are all over the area. So it's not just one thing happening here. It's another one here and there and over here and over in this town where the same thing's happening, where the kingdom's being preached, where people are being freed from bondage. And so from Jesus' perspective... He's watching his authority dismantle the powers of darkness all around the region like little bursts of light where chains are being broken and freedom is being found. And so from the perspective of Satan and his kingdom, it must have been like the lights just all went out in the region. Like what is happening? This is cascade failure is happening all around here. That's the picture I see. Jesus continues and he says, behold... I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. This idea of authority given is not just you have uh, the ability to exercise power, but it more speaks to the right to exercise power. They've been given the right to use, leverage work with Jesus name and in his power to do these things. They've been given the privilege. And nothing Jesus says shall harm you while you're going about this work to which I've called you. Now, we don't have a biblical account of anyone actually like walking over a pile of snakes or just, you know, handling scorpions like no big deal. We don't have a biblical picture of that. I mean, one time the apostle Paul was bit by a snake and people were amazed that he didn't die. But there's a figurative picture here. It's it's illustrative of the protection from harm extended to the disciples from the one who has authority over all creation, including the kingdom of darkness. Now, there's more here for another time and another sermon on the authority that is ours in Christ Jesus, the rights granted to those who are hidden in Christ And there's an invincibility, if I can say it that way, an invincibility we have secure in his hands. Not that we won't get sick, not that we won't suffer hardship or pain because we will, but that there is nothing that can snatch me from the Lord's sovereign hand. And so I can live and we can live by radical faith while practicing godly wisdom, knowing that I'm invincible until the day the Father says my time is up. Now, that's a sermon for another day that we don't have time for today. But Jesus says, in spite of all that, nevertheless, which is a great turn of phrase, right? Nevertheless, you're safe, you're secure, nothing can harm you, you have authority, the demons are subject to you in my name. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, he says, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It is a better joy. A better joy is to be found in the fact that you belong to the Father. That's what Jesus is saying here. Your names are written in heaven. There's a reference here to the book of life. You can find that reference in a couple of places, one of them being Revelation chapter 20. And in Revelation chapter 20, all of creation is standing before the great white throne giving an account of their lives and all that they've done. And those whose names are not written in the book of life, according to Revelation 20, are cast away into a lake of fire that has been prepared and designed for the devil and his angels. But those whose names are in the book of life, Revelation 20 tells us, are the ones who are welcomed into the eternal rest and life Of the Father to dwell secure with Him forever. And Jesus is saying that is a better joy. More than worldly success, more than ministry success. Do not rejoice merely in your wielding of spiritual authority, more than rejoicing in the grace of God to you in saving your soul. That is the better miracle he says. It's a matter of having their priorities straightened out. Temporary help is a good thing. Can you imagine being a person in that town, experiencing oppression from demonic forces or some ailment that's just wreaking havoc on your body for your whole life, and by God's grace, you find freedom from that or healing from that? It would be a miraculous, joyful gift. But eventually, every person who is freed from bondage, every person who is healed of disease that Jesus or His disciples minister to, every one of them eventually passes away. The towns that they live in eventually crumble, most of them forgotten and don't exist anymore, buried under the sand of time. In fact, the earth itself, right? Of much greater importance is that their names are written It's a past tense, indicative, meaning it is already, and a perfect tense. So it's a past perfect tense. Names are written, pointing to what is permanent and secure. See, Jesus is turning their attention to things that last. So why do we struggle often with the up and down, the high and low of our lives? Sometimes it's a mad swing, isn't it? Are we attempting to squeeze too much joy out of impermanent and temporary things? And how do we know if this is happening in us or to us? Does your joy seem to rise and fall like a tiny boat on a really big ocean? Not just your mood or or, or your general emotions, but do you find yourself really excited and happy one moment and really down the next. It could be many things, and I don't and I want to oversimplify it, but it may be, in part, that we, we are rejoicing at too deep a level in things that were not designed to give us that kind of joy. Right? In one moment, the disciples are casting out demons. In the next moment, they're being rejected and run out of town. Jesus is anchoring them to something lasting. See, we can take joy in many things, but they cannot end on themselves if the things that bring us sorrow, and there are lots of things that make us sorrowful. We don't have to shy away from those. But if the things that make us sorrowful don't ultimately end up and settle somewhere on the bedrock truth that God is good, that He is always doing good, and He is always working all things for my good and His glory. Like, we need to settle there. And if, or if the things that bring us joy don't roll up in praise and gratitude to God for His kindness, if they don't spill over into worship, then we might be rejoicing in the wrong things or putting too much hope in the things that won't satisfy. And Jesus gently nudging the disciples and us to assess, in what are you rejoicing? And so Jesus here gently says, don't forget the best Thing. The most joy fueling truth you need is this that through me and in me, Jesus says, Your name is written in heaven. So, how do I know that Jesus is talking about salvation here being the greatest joy? Look at verse 21. In that same hour, he, speaking of Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise. From the understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, and all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to who to him the Son chooses to reveal him. There are three places in the gospels where it's recorded that Jesus wept or he is weeping. And there is only one place where it's recorded that Jesus rejoiced, and this is that. He is rejoicing in the beauty of the wisdom of God in revealing Him as the Savior of the world. Now, this little nugget here in Luke chapter 10 is a fantastic picture of robust, robust, Orthodox Christology, meaning theology about who Jesus is. And it's a foundational uh, theological piece, if you will, to hang on to for Trinitarian theology, the doctrine of the, the triune nature of God. Jesus says here, outlining His divinity, His relationship with the Father. And it also shows that Jesus' mission was all about revealing who he was. That's why he came, so that he could make himself known. And he says to the, to the self-righteous and the prideful, to those who think themselves wise, they're going to miss it. But to those who have faith like that of a child, sound familiar? To those does the revelation of Jesus as God's Messiah and their only hope, those are the ones who are filled with The Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then, turning to his disciples, verse 23, Jesus says this. Turning to the disciples, he says, Privately. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What was hidden for ages is now revealed. Jesus is saying with a big sign on himself, I am here. Kings and prophets waited and hoped, and put their hope in, their faith in, the promise of salvation to come. And here I am. Rejoice, for the one you were waiting for is me. And in the Father's divine wisdom, He has chosen you to be the ones who see God's promise fulfilled with your own eyes. I I love that Jesus turns privately to His disciples and, and tells them, you are blessed because you have me they were getting glimpses and starting to understand in greater and greater reality what was actually happening. The rest of the crowds were there and they were present, but he really zeroes in here on his disciples to say, for you and for everyone who will come after you and hear your message, that's us by the way, what a privilege it is for you to not merely have hope in a promise to come, but in a person, You are hearing with your ears in real time the hope of salvation. And everyone who hears because of you will be blessed as you are. You know, the disciples probably didn't understand everything that was happening, didn't fully get the meaning. And honestly, for us too, we probably won't fully get the meaning of all this either until that last day. But we have been given an immeasurable gift to know Jesus, what a debt of gratitude we could never repay. We rejoice in the power and the provision of God on display in our lives. We rejoice in the many blessings we experience in our families, in our Christian community, as we're encouraged and receive the encouragement and blessing of others, as we use the things God's given us to bless others, to bless them. We rejoice in reports of healing and recovery and freedom from addiction and restoration of relationships. We rejoice in all these things. And they all roll up in praise to God, who is the good father, who is the one who knows how to give good gifts to his children. We rejoice in all of them. And the source of this joy that lasts is that Christ has come to save us. And all these things are blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace of this one true reality. Friends, let us be reminded today that true and lasting joy, the only kind of joy that anchors and secures us in our sorrows, the only kind of joy that amplifies and soars our celebrations is rooted in this. We have life in the kingdom of God and glory in Jesus, our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are merciful, that when we are are far too easily pleased, when we are easily distracted and so tempted to, to worship the gift rather than the giver, we thank you for your mercy, which extends to us again, inexhaustible and rich, that you might draw us back to see you as good, to see you as the giver, and our good and gracious God. Draw our hearts to you. Turn our eyes aside from the things that ultimately don't satisfy, and would you refresh our joy in your salvation. Encourage our hearts as we come to the table that the tangible elements of bread and juice would be a reminder of the deep love you have for your people and the security that we have as belonging to you.